Right, this morning I'm continuing a series, and this is a series that we've been doing all summer long on faith practices. Maybe that's something you've heard of as spiritual disciplines or holy habits, those things that we do to become better disciples of Jesus. If you've been with us all summer, maybe you're getting tired of hearing me say that, but it's something to be repeated. That it's not, discipleship is not about if you are or are not a disciple. But for those of us perhaps who've been people of faith for some time, it's about being a better disciple. How can I be better at following Jesus? Better than I used to be, better than I am now. That we want to be people who grow in discipleship, to know God better, to live for him more fully as the people he's created us to be. So that's what we've been doing. One week at a time going through these faith practices. And our pattern here is we look at one each week, and then there are some tools that are in front of you to try that out in the week ahead and see how that goes. Take some notes. And it's our intention that by the end of the summer, we can uh, go back and look at all of these. We, We have 12 of them, 12 different faith practices that we're looking at. And Maybe identify the two, three, or four that really resonate with each one of you. And that will be a different list for every one of us, what resonates. And from that, form something of what I'm going to call a personal discipleship plan. Something that I can embrace as habits that help me to be a better disciple of Jesus. That's what we're after in this. So today we move on and we're looking at the faith practice of celebrating celebration, what that looks like as a faith practice. There was a businessman who took a trip down somewhere to Central America in one of these seaside uh, resort towns and spent a little time down there. And and while he was there, spent his afternoon in sort of the, the local cantina, the market in this seaside town, and notice all the different shops and booths that were opened up with the different people that would come and sell their things that they would make locally. And one booth in particular looked like it was all closed down till somewhere right about lunchtime a little bit after, this guy walks in with the most enormous bluefin tuna he had ever seen to sell. And he opens his little stand there, and it's, it's, he's selling fish, fresh fish, and he's just got one tuna to sell, giant tuna. And yep, somebody comes, and he buys it. And he just hangs out there a while and talks with some of the other people there. And then after a little while, just closes his shop, and, and he goes away. Thought, Well, that's strange. He just comes and sells one giant fish and then moves along. And next day, he's, he's there relaxing for a while, and he sees the same thing again. Same guy shack is closed all morning and opens up and he brings us one giant fish and sells it and then closes and talks with people and moves on his it's about to leave and he says i gotta figure out what's going on here so walks up to this guy and says all right can you just tell me how this works you show up with one big fish and then sell it and then you're on and how do you what are you up to and he's like well see i'm a fisherman but my boat's pretty small and i can't hold a lot so but I do know right where to go to get the best fish. So I, I sleep in for a bit in the morning, and then you know I just sort of make my way out on the water on my boat and catch a big fish, but it's all I can hold in my boat is this one big fish. So take that one fish back into shore, I guess, and 
get here somewhere about lunchtime and meet some friends, and we all have lunch together, and then I open my stand here, and somebody always wants to buy, so I'll sell my fish, and that gives me what I need, and I'll close it up, and I go home, and I take a nap, and, and have dinner with my family, and spend time with my relation, and maybe visit a few other people, and then go to bed. And this American business guy, being an American business guy, thinks, you know what? You could do so much more. Think if you had a boat that could hold more fish. What if we got you a bigger boat? I mean, because I, I know connections and I know banking and finance and how that works and we could work this out and you could get a bigger boat and then you could catch more fish and catching more fish, you could make more money and you could quickly pay off that boat. And then, so the guy says, all right, but then what? Then what? Well, then you're able to catch more fish, and then since your boat's paid off, you're making more money, you could actually buy more boats, and you could hire people. You could have workers who go out, and then you could have a whole fleet of boats that are fishing. All right, but then what? Then what? Well, then you could open other fish stands in other towns. You could expand. You could have more fish people, and you could sell more fish that way. All right. Then what? Well, then what? Well, think of it. In 10 years, you'd be set. You could retire. 10 years is all it would take. All right. Then what? Then what? Then you're retired. Then you, I don't know, sleep in and maybe go spend a little time fishing and go meet your friends for lunch and take a nap in the afternoon and go have dinner with your family and he says, well, I've got all that right now. That's right where I am right now. Why would I need to do all that to have what I already have? Sometimes when we think about um, the good life, and maybe we all define that differently. Right? What's the good life? What does it mean to have the good life? Maybe we've got these pictures of things that we're striving to get to. Right? Things that would make my life good and where I need to be to have the good life and what do I have to achieve and accomplish for the good life to be there. And sometimes in all those thoughts, maybe, just maybe, we overlook the ways that goodness is right there, right now. That the good life may be right in front of us. Because goodness is something that comes from God. And it's not whether or not God is good. We know God is good, but it's recognizing that goodness, embracing that, living within that. The faith practice of celebration helps us to see that, to know that, what God's goodness looks like. So today I'm going to look at Psalm 103. And this is a psalm of David that talks about goodness, the goodness of God. Before I read that, let's pray together. God, as we open your word today, we acknowledge that these are your words. Even though this is a poem that comes from King David written so many thousands of years ago, you still speak through this. And so we pray that through your Holy Spirit that we would hear from you today what it is that you are speaking to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
All right, Psalm 103, I'm going to read it. Um, it will not be on the screen, but if you have a bulletin, it is in the bulletin. And you're going to notice that uh, the way it's printed in the bulletin, I boxed it off in sections. And I'm going to get to that of what those boxes mean and how that's sectioned off, okay? So, Psalm 103, a Psalm of David. Here's what it says. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things. So that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love. For those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, he remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass, they flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, something about celebrating then and what celebration looks like as a faith practice. Let's remember a few things about David. Maybe that will help us. Remembering that David wrote this psalm, and maybe you know a few things about who David was. I mean, the Bible has stories about David. King David, the one who became king, the one who started as a shepherd, but David, the one who became king of all Israel. David, the one who used a slingshot to kill the giant Goliath and redeem God's people from the oppression of the Philistines. All of that, what we know about David. So when you think about the good life, right, what it means to have the goodness of God, is it surprising that David would write a psalm like this? Of course David can write about how God is good. Look at all the goodness that David enjoyed in his life. But let's not forget the other things about David that the Bible tells us as well. 
David, the youngest. So David, the one who was made to stay home and take care of the family sheep, that's kind of the menial bottom of the heap chore. David, you stay home and do the chores while all your brothers get to go off and be a part of joining Saul's people and serving in his army. But David, not you. You stay here and you just take care of things around the house. David, the one who was overlooked till the very last one when Samuel comes to anoint the next king. Samuel, Samuel the prophet, Samuel the one who heard the voice of God. But Samuel goes down the line with all of the sons of Jesse and doesn't get to David till the very end, the last, the most insignificant of them. I wonder what it was like for David to grow up in that. For David to grow up being the youngest and the most insignificant. The one who was always given the bottom of the heap chores to do. And what that would have been like growing up in that. Or maybe we need to remember in the life of David those years that he spent on the run. After David had killed Goliath, King Saul became very jealous and wanted to kill David because of it. Because David was so popular among the people. But now David had to run and hide. How many months on end did David have to spend living in the wilderness, in caves, hiding out, fearing for his life? Because Saul was after him and wanted to kill him. To the point where David, for a time, even had to flee the land of Israel. And he had to go live in the region of Gath. Gath, by the way, where... Goliath was from before David had killed him. So now David is living among the people of, he killed their champion warrior. The only way David is able to survive is he pretends to be insane. He pretends to go crazy so that the Philistines will just leave him alone, so that they won't see him as a threat anymore. That's David living in a foreign land among foreign people, pretending to be insane so that he's not killed. That's David as well. Even though there are some of those things that we can point to where, yes, David had the goodness of God in his life, he had his own struggles too. David, where we may think of the one who always had victory at his hands, right? That everything always went right for him, but what about his failures? What about the things that didn't go right? What about the time when David plotted and orchestrated the murder of Uriah? Because David wanted Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, to be his own wife. So he had Uriah killed for that. And right when he thinks he got away with it, the prophet Nathan confronts him and his story is outed. David, who had his share of failures too, and about which there are other psalms that David wrote, which are psalms of confession, where he acknowledges that. God, I messed up. I sinned. I failed. But here in Psalm 103, David writes about God's goodness. And and I, I wonder, right? I wonder 
What's going through David's mind as he's writing this? That this psalm could maybe on the one hand be an overflow. That maybe it was written in one of those moments where David was sure of all the goodness of God that was coming around him and overflowing through him. And he writes this psalm of praise to God for all the goodness that he knows and sees and experiences in his life. Or maybe, maybe it could be just as likely that David writes this psalm to remind himself. Maybe it's in one of those times when he's looking for God's goodness. He's trying to identify it. And so he has to intentionally call it out. Maybe in times when it didn't seem present, when it wasn't there. Either way, it shows us a little something about a faith practice of celebrating. David writes this as a way to celebrate the goodness of God. And whether it is something he writes to celebrate God's goodness in times of an overflowing abundance of it, or if he writes this to celebrate God's goodness in a moment when he needs to be reminded of it himself, either way, it works as a faith practice of celebration to reorient, to refocus himself on the goodness of God and where goodness comes from. So let's take a look at how this works, all right? The way this psalm is put together around that. I mentioned that uh, it's printed in the bulletins that we had this week. So you find it printed there. And I had it printed in there with sections sort of boxed off so that you can see the breakdown around this. That was intentional, that I want us to see the movement, the progression of how this psalm works. Because when I stood up here and just read all 22 verses, maybe that gets a little lost how this is working together, okay? So it works like this. It opens, the first two verses open with a personal call to celebrate God's goodness. Do you see that? A personal call to celebrate God's goodness. That he says in that, praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He's calling to his own soul. Three times he uses the word praise, Praise the Lord. Praise his name. Praise the Lord. It's the Hebrew word barak, which means praise, but also means bless. So maybe you're familiar with this from different English translations of the Bible, because some English translations of the Bible write this as bless the Lord, O my soul. It comes from that same Hebrew word. So a, a praise or a blessing that is focused, focused on what is being provided. And then he says, praise the Lord, my soul. That's the Hebrew word negesh, which also is translated from Hebrew into English as life. It can mean soul or life. So praise the Lord, bless the Lord, my soul, or with my whole life. Let my life be something that praises and blesses God. That's the opening. That's his call to celebrate the goodness of God. A personal call. He's giving it himself as the author of this. Then he moves on. The next section there, verses 3 through 5, where it says this. And here's where he names the benefits. These are the benefits of God's goodness. Who forgives all your sins? 
heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. He's naming it. He's calling it out. These are the ways I've experienced the goodness of God. And he gives action words to that. Do you notice that in that section, in just those few verses? Look at the verbs. Look at the action words that take place there. And they're all actions that are being done by God. God is the primary actor. God is the one who's doing these things. But look at what is being done there. Look at what God does just in those verses. The Lord forgives. The Lord heals. The Lord redeems. The Lord crowns his people. The Lord satisfies. The Lord renews. Look at all those things that David is naming as coming from the goodness of God. Forgiveness, healing, redemption, crowning, satisfaction, renewal. Pointing to the actions of God, the benefits. So that he not only says, I'm going to praise the Lord because he's good, but you know what? I'm going to make a list. I'm actually going to list out all the ways that I see the Lord being good to me. I'm going to name it. I'm going to call it out and do that. Then the next section, he moves on in verses 6 through 10. And here, he's naming goodness not just for himself, but let's talk about the goodness of God to all people everywhere. Look what he does in these verses then. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made his ways known to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel, looking backwards through history when God was good to his people. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, quoting from the Old Testament there. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. There, David's moving from personal, right? First person, personal pronouns. And now it's plural. It's us together. That God is not just good to me. God is good to us. God is good to his people. God is good to his creation, to his world. You see how he's expanding that as we go. Begins as a personal call to celebrate the goodness of God. Then he names what those things are in his own life. And then he moves beyond that to name. And look at all the ways that God has been good to the world around me as well and to God's people. And not just to me right now in the time that I'm living, but look back in history at the way God has always been faithful in the past to be good to his people and what that goodness looks like. Then... Verses 11 and 12. All right, so if you've heard me preach for a while, you know something that I always look to identify in biblical literature, and that's a center point. Because so much of what's written in the Bible is written with the main point being right in the middle. So Psalm 103. Psalm 103 has 22 verses. And yep, I know that originally they didn't put verse numbers in the Bible when they wrote it. The verse numbers were added later. But in Hebrew literature, so this is Old Testament, don't think New Testament, but Old Testament only, when they put the verse numbers in, 
they put them at each sentence break. And I know you look at it now and it translates into English, uh, but wait a minute, there's more than that many sentences there. Yeah, it, to come into English, it has to go a little differently. But in the original Hebrew, one verse equals one sentence is the way that works in Hebrew. So when you see a psalm with 22 verses, there are 22 sentences, 22 thoughts that take place there. One of the things that I always look for, and it's not true all the time, but many times you find it, there is a key point right in the middle. So in a 22-sentence poem, you've got 11 verses and then 11 more verses, which means that first section is summarized with verse 11, and the next section is introduced with verse 12. That's why I put them here together. They are the middle of this psalm, and it's the theme. It's the theme of the entire psalm that comes together here, verses 11 and 12. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's the point that David is trying to make. That's where the whole psalm comes together. You know what? He's talking about the goodness of God, sure. That God is the source of all things good, and not just for him personally, but, but for the world that he lives in as well. That God's goodness is evident everywhere for everyone, and maybe the question can be there in the back of his mind. But why? Why is God good? Why would he be good? Why should God be a God of goodness. And that's where he brings it to this middle point. Why is God good? Because God has a love that expands beyond anything we can imagine. That God has a love for his creation that is greater than anything that we could ever know. Because that's who God is. He is a God of that kind of love. That's why God is good. That's why he is the source of goodness. Because that's who God is. A God of that kind of love. So why is it then that this God of love should show his goodness to me? How is it that I get to benefit from this? How is it that I get to, as we've acknowledged here already in this service, as a person who has brokenness, has failures, that needs to come before God in confession that I don't meet the standards of a perfect God. I don't live up to a love like that. How is it that I can be the recipient and the beneficiary of that kind of goodness, that kind of love? And David calls that one out here too. Because not only is the love of God beyond anything we could ever know or imagine, but his forgiveness goes further than we will ever know as well. That even though none of us deserve 
the goodness of God. That God chooses to be good to us anyway because we are forgiven. Forgiven with the blood of Christ. Forgiven in a way where the righteousness of our perfect Savior Jesus covers us. So the guilt of who I am, the guilt of my own brokenness, the guilt of everything that I've done wrong, Jesus took that. He's taken all the guilt that you have, anything that you've ever messed up, anything that you would ever go before God and say, I'm just not good enough. God would say, you know what, you're right. You're not good enough. But Jesus took that. Jesus took all that is wrong in our world with you and with me, and he took that to the cross. And then there at the cross, Jesus took his own perfect righteousness and said, this is for you. Now you get to be covered in the righteousness of God. That's what Jesus did at the cross. That's why we're forgiven. That's why the goodness of God still comes to us. Why we are still the recipients and the beneficiaries of God's goodness. David points that out here, right in the middle of this psalm. It's the key, the theme that takes it together. He moves on then. From there, verses 13 through 19. And here he's talking about the faithfulness of God's goodness. So, so he begins by saying, here's my personal thing, right? I'm going to see all the ways that God has been good to me, and I'm going to list and name what those things are, and then I'm going to go on to say, and here's the ways that God is good to all people everywhere, and even backwards throughout history, you see that, God's faithfulness in being good to his people, but now he's turning forwards. Just in case you wonder, is God's goodness ever going to run out? Will it ever dry up? Will there ever be a point where God says, that's enough goodness, we're done now? And to that, David says this as he continues in verse 13 through 19. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we're formed. He remembers that we're dust. Yes, the life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower in the field, and the wind blows it over, and it's gone, and its place remembers it no more. But, however, from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven. His kingdom rules over all. There's no boundary. There's no place where the goodness of God stops. There's no place where God's goodness shuts off. But it's faithfully there forever. It continues. As long as we look for the goodness of God, we find it. And as I said, maybe David wrote this poem in a moment of an overflowing reassurance of that. Maybe he knew that. But it could be just as likely 
that David wrote this poem in a moment where he needed to remind himself that maybe in those moments where he was losing sight of God's goodness, he needs to reframe and reorient his point of view to see once again the goodness of God that's in front of him. Not just in that moment, not just for him, not just for his people, but something that faithfully endures for all time, in all of God's creation, and will never end. And then, he closes it. Once again, returning to this call for celebration, but a little different than the opening, right? The, the opening call for celebration is personal. That's David saying, my soul, I'm going to praise God. My life will praise the Lord. Now, he ends the psalm returning again to a call to celebration, but now it's not just him. Look, it's an invitation. Now it's corporate. Everyone is invited to celebrate the goodness of God. In verses 20 through 22, Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. It ends with this call to celebration. That's not just David anymore, but now everyone, the entire creation, praise the Lord for his goodness. All right, that's the structure. That's how it comes together for us as David's point of view, his perspective on celebrating, the faith practice of celebration. Let's pull a few things out of this to, to wrap this one up then, okay? Let's pull a few things out that give us maybe a roadmap of what it looks like for us to be people who do this, who have that kind of a faith practice. How can I be a person who celebrates the goodness of God like that so that it becomes something that grows and builds and strengthens my own faith? Well, we see, first of all, that this is an intentional focus on goodness, that celebrating intentionally focuses on goodness. Think of some celebrations. I mean, we know what it means to celebrate. We know what celebrations look like. Let me give just a few examples of celebrations. Birthday parties. When someone significant has a birthday, you have a birthday party. It's a celebration. Or think of maybe a graduation open house. For those that accomplish that milestone of moving from one place to the next in their education. Sometimes we have this graduation celebration and open house and friends and families come and gather and you put together those picture boards with all the significant photos of things on it. A celebration. Or a wedding reception. If you go to a wedding ceremony, often, right, in our custom and in our culture that you have the wedding ceremony, but then you have a reception a place where you go and there's a celebration. All of these things focus on some particular kind of goodness. A birthday party is a celebration that focuses on the goodness of someone receiving another year of life. You celebrate another year, another milestone in that. That's what a birthday celebration is for. It's that goodness. A graduation open house is a celebration of goodness and achieving some kind of an academic milestone. 
So you're celebrating and you're commemorating all the things of the academic achievements and the friendships and the extracurricular activities, all of those things. Celebrate it and pointing to those as calling out the goodness of those. A wedding reception celebrates the goodness of two people making covenant vows together to live in covenant love. A celebration of goodness, and it's naming what that goodness is, calling that out. We're not just going to let this moment go by without taking a moment to pause and celebrate the goodness, to highlight it, to raise it up, and to set it in front of us as something we celebrate. Then notice this. Look at the way David does this as well, that celebration of goodness is something that is both personal and corporate. That David begins by listing, here's all the benefits I've received from the goodness of God. Here's how God's been good to me. But then he goes on to list, and here's how God is good to others as well. Here's how his goodness exists in the world beyond my own. That it is both personal and corporate. So, today, this afternoon for my family, was supposed to be a pool day to get together with family and be at a pool. And it was raining outside when I got up this morning. But I know there are also farmers in this community who wake up and celebrate a goodness. Maybe it'll be a rain out for me to go to a pool day this afternoon. But there's goodness. Goodness beyond my own, not just me, but a goodness beyond for those in our community who need and depend on that rain for their crops and their fields to grow. It is both personal and corporate. God's goodness is never just about me, but it goes beyond that. So what do we do with that? Let me leave you with just two more things then. First of all, name it. It's easy for us to say, yep, God is good. I know that God is good, and I know that God provides goodness. But the faith practice of celebration names it. Be specific. Be particular. I know in the faith practice materials that we provided, so uh, for those of us who've been in this, we've got this booklet that we've been working through. And one of the suggestions that's in there every week is journaling, that there are some journaling prompts. And maybe some of you are journalers who do that, and that's quite normal for you. Maybe others of us, maybe that's been a practice that we haven't done or haven't tried or haven't developed or doesn't work so well. This would be a good one to try your hand at journaling, even if you've never done it before. Because there is something valuable in spending some time thinking about What are the ways that God has been good to me? What does God's goodness look like in my life and beyond my life in my world? And then name it. Write it down. Put a word to it or a phrase to it. Articulate those thoughts into writing so that you can look at it and see it and keep that in front of you. That's an encouragement I would give for this week. However that works for you, right? Note cards or a notepad or if you've got a a, tablet or phone or device or type it. It doesn't matter the form, but somehow find a way this week to name it. Put words to what God's goodness looks like and be specific, be particular. And then the last thing, share it. 
You see what David does here, that he doesn't keep it to himself, but he gives this corporate call for let's all share God's goodness together. So in some of those examples of celebration that I gave, things like a birthday party, an open house, a wedding reception, it's not a private one-person thing. You bring others in. You say, I'm going to identify a goodness of God, and I'm going to share that goodness with others. That it's an overflow of celebration. That's what the faith practice of celebration looks like. It helps to reorient us. It helps us to remember that God is always good, that his goodness is always there. Sometimes maybe we overlook it, we forget about it, we ignore it, we diminish it, but a faith practice of celebration brings it out again, brings it up, and keeps it in front of us as something that always reminds us that God's goodness, his faithfulness, endures forever. And so we say those words, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, my soul. We sing that together, bless the Lord, oh my soul, as our act of celebration. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gift of your word and the way that uh, this poem of David teaches us yet today what it looks like and what it means to celebrate, to celebrate your goodness. So God, first of all, we want to say that we're sorry for the times when maybe we've overlooked what your goodness is in our lives, when we've forgotten just how good you've been to us and to our world, when we've let our own failures or shortcomings get in the way or our own maybe sometimes distorted view of what we think the good life should be cloud over the goodness that you've provided. God, forgive us for that. And Lord, I pray then that you help us in this week to see your goodness clearly. Help us to name it, to write it down, to give expression to it, and help us to share it so that we don't just say these words, bless the Lord, O my soul, but we live it in ways that point to you, strengthen our faith, and allow others to see you as well. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.